Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from Pursue God. I'm Brian. That's Ross over there. And Ross, last time we talked about bulletproof evidence against the Book of Mormon, we covered things like archaeology and what else did we cover? DNA. DNA evidence. uh, Plagiarism from the Bible. And we kind of ran out of time. It turns out that this episode, this this topic requires more than one episode. So today we're going to talk about something called an anachronism. But before you even define that, why don't we... I think it's important for us to revisit what Joseph Smith himself claimed mm-hmm. about the Book of Mormon, because he said, "Is it isn't it true that he said it's a bigger deal, it's more valuable, it's more true, it's more perfect than even the Bible itself? Yeah, he said, I'll, I'll give you the exact quote. He said, the Book of Mormon is the, was the most correct of any book on earth. That's a big claim. Wow. And he went on and said, it's the keystone of our religion, which that makes sense. And he says, a man will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Um, so he's including even the Bible in that. So, so he says, the most correct book is the way to know God. Um, so that's a pretty big claim. Yeah. And so, you know, again, we're, we started out last time by talking about that's a, a claim that's worth testing. And, and especially when the LDS missionaries come by, they're going to seek uh, to convert people to the LDS church by urging them to read the Book of Mormon and pray about its divine authenticity. So they're putting a lot of weight on the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. for sure. That's why it deserves um, to be evaluated. Now, you grew up Mormon, Ross, so before we jump into this, how much do Mormons read the Book of Mormon versus reading the Bible? Because the Book of Mormon is one of four scriptures for them. The Bible mm-hmm. is another. And so is it kind of 50-50? No, they really are encouraged to read the Book of Mormon they read the Book of Mormon a lot more. Yeah. They, they recently there was a um, the Book of Mormon challenge they called it, where uh, they encouraged everybody in the church to read the Book of Mormon in the year, and they made a big deal about it, organized it, and so forth. Now they'll spend time reading the Bible for sure, but the Book of Mormon is the like he says here it's, it's the keystone of our religion. Joseph Smith mm. said. And so it gets the most attention, for sure. And yet there are so many problems. Really, I think, bulletproof evidence against the Book of Mormon, and we covered a lot of them last time, but today we're going to really focus on anachronisms. Now, that's a word that some people might not know, so let's start with the definition. Yeah, an anachronism, that refers to events or objects that appear out of the proper time period in which you'd expect them. And so... You know, if you're reading a novel that's supposed to take place in World War II, and somebody you know pulls out an iPad, well, that's an anachronism, and you'd go, "Whoa, wait a minute, this story can't be true because they didn't have iPads in 1942, hmm. right?" So there there are a number of different kinds of anachronisms that occur in the Book of Mormon that suggest that it is not really authentic to its the to the story and the time frame in which it claims to represent. And really a lot of Mormons don't uh, probably aren't even aware of it right. because they don't they might not be history buffs and they not, might not be approaching the Book of Mormon with a critical eye. So right. I would just applaud the people who are listening to this who are who are Mormons who have an inquiring mind and I would just encourage you just to keep listening. We're not going to we're not going to try to be mean-spirited here, but we do want to pull the veil back mm-hmm. on some of this because some of this is pretty shocking. Like, like for example, Ross synagogues. Synagogues are in the book of Alma. Right. So, 
Um, Nephite evangelists went out preaching. It says they preached repentance in the synagogues, which were built after the manner of the Jews. Okay, well, why is that a problem? Well, it's because the Nephites were descended from the Jews, according to this story, and so they're Jewish, and so why wouldn't they you know, meet in synagogues and so forth? But the thing is that synagogues in Judaism were not developed until about 400 years after the Nephites left Jerusalem in the 2nd century B.C., around that time. So how could the writer have known how the Jews built their synagogues? They were built after the manner of the Jews. Well, Okay, so let's do the math. We talked about this last time, but the, the, according to the Book of Mormon, this family, this Jewish family, or a couple of families, they leave the Israel right before uh, 586, this, you know, the fall yeah. of Judah. They leave Israel, and so that's around, let's just round to 600. 600, that's the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is interesting in this regard, and it, it helps us evaluate it because it gives a chronology. Yeah. And so they're, they're, according to the Book of Mormon... These things are happening around 600 B.C. 600 B.C. How many synagogues were in Israel or Jerusalem at, in 600 B.C.? Zero. Zero. Right. The synagogue was a, de- a later development as um, Judaism be- it spread more around the whole Mediterranean world after Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. And so places to gather, to practice their faith, and so forth were a later development compared to the biblical times, the Old Testament times. Hundreds of years later, yeah. and yet synagogues appear in the Book of Mormon. But of course, Joseph Smith didn't realize that. Right. But in retrospect, we know that. Yep. And so this is a major, major problem. That's an anachronism. It shouldn't, right. It's like an iPad in a World War II movie. It, it shouldn't be there. shouldn't be it there. It shouldn't be there. Okay, what about... What about plants and animals in the Book of Mormon? Yeah, we touched on this last episode a little bit, but let me drill down a little bit more. So in Mosiah chapter 9, verse 9, he says, We began to till the ground, yea, even with all manner of seeds, with seeds of corn and of wheat and of barley. Well, corn is, is native to the New World, but wheat and barley were brought to America by Europeans, which could not have been any time earlier than about 1500 uh, A.D. Okay, let's do the math again for people that aren't familiar with this. So the Book of Mormon, the, the time period purported from the Book of Mormon, Ross, is about 600 B.C. to about 400 A.D. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. When did the Europeans come to the Americas? Well, Columbus in 1492 That's sailed right. the ocean blue. That's right. right? So 1492, so what... So what you're saying is there's no way that wheat and barley would have been there in the time period that it was written in. Correct, correct. Now, the LDS um, defenders have answers to all these things. Mm. Okay, so they might say, well, he didn't really mean wheat and barley as we know it, but he was only using a word that he was familiar with for some other kind of grain that was native to the American. We don't know what it was, but Joseph Smith just picked the word available to him that most corresponded to mm. uh, that particular grain. That's clever. That's clever. But, um, you but know... It not, doesn't seem that perfect, then. It doesn't work out that perfectly, no. Especially, I mean, if it's the most perfect book well, yeah. ever written. And, and especially, you know, when, when we get to not just plants, but animals. So again, the Book of Mormon talks about sheep, goats, cattle, swine, horses... All of these were introduced to America by Europeans. 
again, the same kind of time frame after 1500, essentially. And so, wait a minute, what if Joseph Smith was really um, just using common word in, in 18 in 19th century America to describe some other animal that hadn't been named or discovered in the new world, like, like the taper or peccary or whatever, what animal in the new, that was native to the new world corresponded to a horse that he could have said, okay, well, this animal, the best way to describe that is by using the word horse. There isn't anything. Mm. There's nothing. You know, you don't see uh, soldiers riding around on tapers. <laughs> you know, so that it, so it's really a mm, it's a pretty weak argument. And again, horses—that's uh, just one example. There are other examples: sheep, goats, <coughs> cattle, swine that were introduced by the Europeans. But horses—that's the big one. That's right? the easiest one to that's figure out. One. So that's an anachronism because those animals, those species, did not exist in the New World in the Book of Mormon time frame. So again, the only, in my mind, the only possible explanation, or at least the vastly most likely explanation, explanation for this, is that Joseph Smith was writing this into this book. He wasn't really translating it from gold plates like he said he was. There were no gold plates. He was making the whole thing up, but he didn't have an understanding of this, and that's right. why there are so many anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Right, it just reflects that, you know, that, that he didn't know what the milieu and the environment of the ancient American world was like. And really, honestly, there probably was no way for him to know, right? I mean, he maybe there was some some information around out there on this, but he wouldn't have necessarily had access to right. it. But in retrospect, we look at it and we say, up, oh, you're exposed. Right. Here you go, you're exposed. And I know that that's really been the outcome for a lot of Mormons, there's just too many of these things have stacked up against this, and they're like, I just can't buy this anymore. Yeah. 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 How about economy? Let's do one more. Economy. Well, you know, just briefly, the Book of Mormon describes um, a, a number of coins that the Nephites used, but there's no evidence archaeologically that, um, that during that time frame in ancient America, they had a coin-based economy or a, or a, a money-based economy. They had a barter-based economy. So there's no evidence of... Um, of uh, coinage from that period. So that would be an anachronism, where Joseph Smith basically is taking the world that he understood and superimposing it back on a different world that he didn't understand. Okay, let's shift gears a little, Ross, and let's talk about some 18th century ideas that show up in the Book of Mormon. Again, the Book of Mormon was claiming to be from the time period of 600 B.C. roughly to 400 A.D., and yet there are some 18th century ideas that are out of place that show up in there. Right, another form of anachronism, really. You know, a lot of people have observed a lot of parallels. From, from early on, and when the Book of Mormon was first uh, published, there were readers from that time frame who go like, wait, whoa, this is more like, it reads more like the 19th century America than it does that like some uh, you know time in the distant past. So Alexander Campbell for example, he said in his review of the Book of Mormon, he was a uh he was a Protestant church leader. He said that Joseph Smith had written into the Book of Mormon every error and almost every truth discussed in New York for the last 10 years. Wow. So he could read it, he could say, "Well, well look at all these issues that that are 
And so the idea, his, his assumption was that Joseph Smith was trying to decide all these controversies by creating a new scripture that mm. was going to solve everything for, for his generation and framing it as though it was ancient. And what about some of the sermons by some of the Nephite prophets? Again, who were the Nephites, Ross, for people who aren't sure? That, that's a word a lot of people wouldn't know. What, what was a Nephite? Right. So the, these, these migrants coming out of Jerusalem... The leader of that clan was a guy named Lehi, supposed to have been an Old Testament-type prophet. He had four sons. Um, They've split up into the ones who were the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys were led by his son Nephi. The bad guys were led by his son Laman. So hence, those two groups grew up and became the Nephites and the Lamanites. And so... As you read the Book of Mormon, you'll notice that some of the sermons by the Nephite prophets echo the form and language of 19th century evangelists, the ones where, where jo- when Joseph Smith lived. And Joseph Smith lived in western New York. This, was, this is known as the burnt-out district because there were so many um, preachers that would go yeah. through that area and preach revivalist-type sermons, and, and that was probably one of the turnoffs for Joseph Smith, right? As he'd probably been to many, he had some inf- some uh, involvement with the Methodist Church, and I'm sure he was turned off by some of that that religious fervor and recognized how it would just come and go, and yeah. and so we can read some of that even into the Nephite prophet right. uh, for sermons. S- for some reason, these Nephite prophets, a thousand years, more than a thousand years before Joseph Smith's time, end up having sort of the same homiletic style and the same language and so forth as the preachers of Joseph Smith's day. Hmm. So preachers that he didn't even believe were necessarily from God. But it's the form that he knew. It's what his, it's his default. And so he ends up writing his default into the story of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and so just to go back, I, I would challenge people who are trying to investigate this look look for that as you read the book of mormon and look for some of these theological and political themes that show up that are really 19th century themes not themes from the old world certainly things like democracy right and socialism and capitalism yep. and a lot of those protestant controversies yeah religious controversies like infant baptism and calvinism and and preparation or call to ministry, yeah. and things that were being discussed, maybe sometimes vigorously even in the early 1800s. In the early 1800s, even Unitarianism. Yeah, which, which was, was just starting to emerge yeah. um, around that time frame. And again, how could these types of themes show up in the Book of Mormon when the Book of Mormon was supposed to be predating 400 AD? Uh, clearly... I mean, if you think about it, if you're if if you're informed with this, I think because again, a lot of people might just not even be thinking about these anachronisms. Right. Clearly, you should be scratching your head, saying that that had to be made up. Yeah. Now, the Mormon apologists will will answer by acknowledging. Many of them will acknowledge those that those themes exist, but their answer would be that's just God being gracious. God being gracious to speak to the the time frame that when this book would would come forward, but you know I don't know it doesn't speak to any of the issues that um, affect American culture today. It doesn't speak to homosexuality and transgenderism and 
and you know the kind of global economy and all the things that were unknown in Joseph Smith's day. Mm. Why would God really want to speak to just that one narrowly defined uh, generation and not speak to other generations mm. as well? Yeah, that's good. Ross, let's talk for a second about literary sources, and and the, let's start with this book by Ethan Smith, published back in 1823, mm-hmm. and the book's called A View of the Hebrews. How does that tie into the Book of Mormon? Yeah, this is this is kind of a related point to the one we just made, because what you see is that, you know, Joseph Smith is apparently reflecting these themes that were common in the culture of American culture in the early 1800s, and some of those themes emerge in other works written by other people. And some of them show a lot of signs of literary parallels or even literary dependence. So Ethan Smith was a, was a Christian minister in the New England area, and he argued that Native Americans were descended from the lost ten tribes of Israel. And that was actually a pretty common view back then. A lot of people were saying that. Because part of it was, as the, as the pioneers moved west into the frontier in Ohio and so forth, they began to discover these ancient mounds, uh, the mound-builder cultures of, the, of Native Americans. And they go, they looked at the, the, the Indians of their day, and they looked at these mounds, and they didn't think that the Native Americans of their day could possibly have built those things. Hmm. And so they're trying to answer the question, where did these things come from? You know, who, who inhabited the American world before we got here? And so with a view of the Hebrews, what's really interesting is that when you play, put, put them parallel to each other, there, there's no direct quotes in the Book of Mormon from the view of the Hebrews, but there are extensive parallels thematically. So we, we talked about the... Um, last time about all the quotations from Isaiah. Well, Ethan Smith has massive quotations from Isaiah. Um, Ethan Smith talked about how the New World was peopled from the Old World by a long sea voyage. That's what the Book of Mormon says, too, and that there was a religious motive for that migration. The migrants were divided into two groups, civilized group, uncivilized group, with long wars. That's the Nephites. That, that maps pretty closely to the idea of the Nephites and the Lamanites who are often at war uh, between them. And so th- that, there's a number of other parallels that make it strongly suggest that the Book of Mormon has some kind of literary dependence on Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. It, did Ethan Smith even suggest that the gospel was preached in ancient America? Yeah, just like we, just like we see in the Book of Mormon. Part of his concern was that um, that the Native Americans would be seen by the American public as worthy to receive the gospel message. Hmm. Um, and Joseph Smith also had that he wanted to preach his gospel to the Native Americans to redeem the Lamanites and so forth. So there's another parallel. Now, do we know if Joseph Smith ever read this book, a, a view of the Hebrews? We can't verify for sure that he ever had the book. The book was written, was released about five to seven years before the production of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so it was 1823. Mm-hmm. And the, the Book of Mormon is published in 1830, but he'd been working on it for a, a couple of years. Yeah, that's prior so to interesting that. how many parallels there are. Now, can you still find this book, A View of the mm-hmm. Hebrews by yeah, Ethan Smith? It's out there. Yeah. yeah. I'd encourage there. people if you really want to know. Yeah, you could go online and see the whole thing. Pick up the book. Yeah, so. Uh, but even if he never had the copy of it, 
then these ideas were out there in the culture. These ideas were being talked about and discussed and speculated about. There was dozens of authors from that time frame that um, shared at least some of these ideas about the origin of the Native Americans. Yeah, let's list off a couple of those books for people that want to maybe pick those up or look into them. In fact, we'll put these down in the show notes. So one of them is History of the American Indians by James Adair, published in 1775, so about 50 years before Joseph Smith's stuff. Yeah, so it would he it would have been... Now, now here's the... So with few of the Hebrews, there's no direct quotations. With this one, History of the American Indians, there's a number of words and phrases that are very, very close as he's describing their fortifications. And mm-hmm. there's some there's some really close parallels that, that make it really look like that perhaps Joseph Smith had read this book. We can't verify that he read it, but, but the parallels are so close, you're going like, hmm, you and I might have the same... We might express the same concept, but use different words. Mm. When we start using some of the same words, you think, oh, we either collaborated or one of us borrowed it from the other. And there's another book written by Josiah Priest in 1825 called The Wonders of Nature. And did Joseph do the same thing there? There's Again, there's similarities in several passages, close similarities. And so you have to wonder, is that coincidence or is there some kind of dependence? And then finally, one more written by... Uh, E.T.A. Hoffman? Yeah, E.T.A. Yeah, e. Hoffman. That's a funny name. Called The Golden Pot, and the English translation was released in 1827. So again, right around right that, that time that when framework. Joseph was yeah. doing his stuff. Now this one, some people, this one may be a little bit farther, because the, the stories of Hoffman, there's the parallels are not within the text of the Book of Mormon themselves. The parallels are more in terms of the story of how jo- Joseph acquired the Book of Mormon mm. and how the angel came to him and he went to the hillside and he had to go on the solstice and he had to go three times before he's able to take. And those are similar parallels to uh, what Hoffman wrote. Uh, Hoffman was a sort of fantasy writer of his day mm. um, and what he wrote in The Golden Pot. So and again, all of these were published before the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I would just encourage someone who really wants to know the truth, like, look at this. Because, uh, Ross, for me, I know a lot of people have said to me, there's no way that Joseph Smith could have made this up. He was a young man. He would have been had to be too brilliant to make this whole thing up. Well, maybe he didn't make this whole thing up. Right. There's a lot of resources available to him from which he could have drawn uh, um, a lot of these concepts that are in the Book of Mormon. Now, Ross, I don't remember the name, but maybe we'll have to save this for another episode, but wasn't there another pretty famous book around that time where there's a lot, a lot of stuff drawn from? Well, that I think if you're thinking of the um, Solomon Spaulding That's right. manuscript, to me, I didn't bring that up because I don't think it's as credible, mm. and there's some missing gaps in terms of how that could have taken place. Uh, we just, in my view, we don't know as much about that. And now other people have said that that and have tried to make a case that there is a d- direct literary dependence from the Book of Mormon on Solomon Spaulding's novels, manuscript found. I think it's what it's called. Uh, to me, that case is not as c- clear cut, hmm. and so I didn't. I decided not to bring it up. But many people believe that that it gets a good that could a good case can be made. 
Well, I appreciate that, Ross. We want to be fair and balanced here. Maybe we'll maybe we'll look at that both yeah. sides of that in another episode. Yeah. But let's just do one more. Let's talk about Bible anachronisms. Let's look at some of the aspects of how the Book of Mormon interacts with the Bible that that don't reflect Joseph Smith's time period, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Now, last episode we talked about synagogues. How so? There's a correlation here that can be taken as a lack of archaeological evidence, but it could also be taken as an anachronism. One anachronism is the King James Version language. Again, we talked about this before, but King James Version was translated in 1611. That's 210 years before the Book of Mormon, or 220 years. English had changed a lot. And so I don't know if any of our readers in high school had to read Last of the Mohicans, by James Fenimore Cooper, or The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, or The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Mm. um, with the stories of Ichabod Crane and so forth. Those are all written around the same time as Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon. In the language of the day. In the language of the day. So we can compare those. I remember reading The Scarlet Letter. I can compare The Scarlet Letter to the language in the form, literary form in the Book of Mormon, Mm. and they're night and day. They're night and day. Now, it's, it's not easy to read for us today to read literature from the early 1800s, it's a little thick and a little flowery for our perspective, but it's not King James Le- mm-hmm. language. And so why would the Book of Mormon, if it's translated from some original in 1820, they say 1830, if it's translated, why would it be translated into the style uh, that American that, that of English from 200 years before? That's a that's a question that we have about uh, an ana- it's an anachronism for it to be translated into language of the of the 1600s. Well, and this is helpful, Ross. I, I've actually never thought about comparing it to literature because just to continue the comparison, we can look at Shakespeare's writings, mm-hmm. which many of us had to read in high school, and read something from Shakespeare, and read something from Nathaniel Hawthorne. And you'll notice the difference. Yeah, big difference. It's yeah. a lot harder to read because Shakespearean English is is in that King James English. Yeah, it's close. It's close in time to the yeah. King James version of the Bible, exactly. And so, you know, the King James version was probably really the only trans- Bible translation broadly available to Americans. Um, it it was how Scripture sounded in people's minds, and so. Why would the Book of Mormon not reflect the common language of Joseph Smith's time unless it was some kind of a conscious attempt to make it sound like Scripture, mm-hmm. right? Now, Ross, what about what about some of these verbal parallels to this that 1611 preference or preface to the King James Version? Yeah, this is an interesting point because yeah. the preface to the King James Version, again, it's not part of the Bible. It was written by the translators of the Bible to kind of uh, orient the reader to what w- was going to happen. And the Book of Mormon contains certain phrases and words that seem to be drawn directly from the preface. Now, the Nephites were said to have this copy of uh, the Book of Isaiah that they carried with them on, a, on brass plates. That, though, that would not have contained the preface to the 1611 version <laughs> right. of the of the King James Version. So why does the Book of Mormon reflect phrases and words from you know, the King James Version preface? preface not from the text, not from scriptural the text, text itself, itself. Yeah. right? but from its preface. So that's a, that's a tough question. Hmm. 
Yeah, there's just so many of these things stack up. Again, as I, if a couple of these stack up, maybe you could explain them away. But there are just so many that stack up, and it makes you make. It's hard to draw any conclusion, but that Joseph Smith just wasn't clued into this stuff. Obviously, yeah, he couldn't have yeah. been. But now, in retrospect, we can look and we say, "Hey, nice try." Yeah, yeah, N- totally. nice try. It, but it, it all adds up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's talk about the timeline in the Book of Mormon, and compare that to uh, scriptural timelines. Yeah, so Alma, the argument of the Book of Alma in the in the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 12 and 13, in the timeline of the Book of Mormon, it's written B.C. It's written before the New Testament emerged in the, in the Old World. Well, its argument draws heavily on the Book of Hebrews. Wait a sec, the Book of Hebrews hadn't been written yet, and yet, you know, there's this there's this parallel between the two, and and there's a number of um, theological statements in the Book of Mormon that draw from or they're dependent on interpretations that uh, that show up in the New Testament, but in the Book of Mormon, the timeline is there there before the New Testament was produced. Again, back to our analogy: if I'm writing a novel about um, World War II. And I have one of my characters is reading a book, and the book turns out to be, you know, something written in the 1960s. Oops, you know, that's that's an anachronism, and it and it takes away the credibility of the story. Talk, Ross, for a second about some of the prophecies from First and Second Nephi. Those are books for people who don't know. Those are a couple of books in the Book of Mormon, and there are prophecies that that purport to date, what, back to 600 B.C.-ish, right? Yeah. About the coming of Christ, but yet the language they use is suspicious. Yeah, it's suspicious because it's too detailed. In a sense, they know know too much, in a sense. Because if you look at the Old Testament, and you look at the prophecies of the Messiah, there's a certain amount of obscurity there. There's a detail that will pop out once in a while, like in in Micah chapter 5, where it talks about the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But it doesn't give us a whole picture. Well, in the Book of Mormon, the prophecies give us this whole picture of the Messiah, and it's almost as if it was written after the fact. Mm. Well, Hmm. you know, (laughs) maybe maybe it was. was. There's just too much detail that this prophets know, and so it really suggests an author who's familiar with the fulfillment of the prophecies. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like reading back into... The, the prophecies, the things that we already know, you know, took place. Yeah, and, and we talked, let's just cover one more, Ross. We talked about this last time, but I think it bears repeating. This, again, this is just so eye-opening. The Sermon on the Mount, right? So the, we can find the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew in the New Testament, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But there's a version, essentially, of the Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon. Right. So what's the problem with that? Yeah, well, you know, it's plausible. So the Book of Mormon tells how Jesus appeared in the American continent, and he, he spent some time organizing his church and, and giving teachings. So it's plausible that Jesus could have the same things on his heart. You could argue that, okay, if these things meant so much to Jesus, he would share them in both contexts, in the old world and the new world. But the problem is, is that, that Joseph Smith imported some things into the Sermon on the Mount in the New World that really only made sense in the Old World. Now, now he got it partly right, because um, in, the, in the New World, in the Book of Mormon version, 
there's no reference to the Pharisees. Okay, Joseph Smith was at least thinking about, oh, well, there's no Pharisees in the, in the New World. That's a different cultural setting and different historical setting. But he brought in some other things that presuppose a first-century Jewish cultural and religious context. And so in the last episode, we talked about going two miles. If someone you know, tells you to uh, go one mile, go two miles, well, that, Im- that implies the Roman uh, conquerors and their occupation of Palestine. There's a Roman rule. And, but, G- but Jesus in the New World version is saying the same thing, even though there was no Roman occupation in the New World. And another one, it talks about, in G- Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not even one jot or tittle will, will fall away from, f- f- or be removed from my word. Well, the jot and tittle are tiny little markings in the Hebrew script. And so for, the, for that to make any sense at all, you'd have to have an audience that's familiar with Hebrew written, with written Hebrew language. And so there's no evidence in the Book of Mormon that, that his audience was, um, was, you know, wrote in Hebrew language. Mm. And so that seems like an anachronism in the Book of Mormon. So, Ross, what do you say... I guess I want to le- I want to let you s- speak to the Mormon who's listening to this, and I hope we still have some people from the Mormon faith who have made it to the end. So thank you for your bravery, if that's you, listener, because I I know it's hard to hear these things. It's hard to hear evidence against bulletproof evidence against the Book of Mormon. That's hard to hear. You know, we've spent two episodes talking through this. Ross, what do you say to the person? Because I know what a, what a, Mormon, a Mormon missionary would say to the person. Mm-hmm. They would say, look, you need to pray about it. Mm-hmm. Because Joseph Smith, Smith said it is true. And you need, to, you need sort of an internal witness. It's more about your feelings than about all this evidence that we've stacked up. So what would you say to that person who's really struggling with that dichotomy? Yeah, you know, recent, uh, recently I heard this argument. I hear it from time to time where if we have this conversation with an LDS person, they'll often reply, well, you can make all the same arguments against the Bible, you know, which you can't, and and that's probably more of a dodge than it is an actual... uh, And so I'd say, look, compare, compare these kind of points of evidence between the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Because a lot of times the LDS person, if they become convinced of the problems in the Book of Mormon, they'll just throw the baby out with the bathwater, and they'll assume that all religious faith, that all claims of scriptural authority, whatever, are null and void. If the Book of Mormon doesn't add up, then that's it. No, nothing adds up. So I would encourage our listeners to say, hey, you know what? Investigate the Bible and, and ask whether or not these issues add up against the Bible? Are there anachronisms in the Bible's text? Does the Bible look like it was um, drawing on ideas and worldview that are from a different age or a different time and place? You know, does the Bible look like it um, is based on, you know, secular works that are floating around out there? Does the Bible look like, you know, that, that there are um, textual challenges and problems that mm-hmm. don't fit? in the cultural context, and ask those same questions, because you'll discover that you don't have to throw the baby out with the ba- the bathwater. There's another approach. Yeah, in fact, we have an article, we have a topic in the library at Pursue God called Why the Bible, and we, we just give three basic reasons 
that we can trust the Bible. Because, Ross, as, as pastors and as Christians, we would encourage people in our churches, do your research, look mm-hmm. into all this stuff, mm-hmm. read those books, read the books that are blacklisted. You know? Yeah, yeah. We, we don't blacklist books in the Christian church. We say read it, because we believe at the end of the day, God's Word will stand the test yeah. of time, and it has, and it, continue, it will continue to do so. And maybe it'd be helpful for us even just to give one example of this, and we'll put a link to this topic down in the show notes for people who want to dig into this a little bit more. But, you know, really ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs have actually stacked up in favor of biblical reliability. And one of the best examples of that, Ross, is the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why don't we just briefly Mm -hmm. talk about that so we can contrast biblical reliability with with what we've been talking about with the Book of Mormon this whole time. Yeah, that's a great point. So we have the we have the Bible coming down to us from the ancient Jewish culture, the Old Testament in particular. So the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lived around um, 700 BC. And so he, he writes this book of Isaiah. You know, it's been passed down, handed down through multiple scribal transitions. And, you know, one, uh, once one manuscript gets worn out, the scribes had to copy it and make another manuscript. And so we don't, we didn't really know like how accurate is is that process. Yeah, we don't we don't have the original manuscript for right. the book of Isaiah or for any of those Old Testament but we don't right. have, or for any of the New Testament we don't have the original manuscript so we have to rely on manuscript copies and these aren't Xerox Xerox copies. They're not they're hand they're handwritten. They're hand hand transcribed. And so before uh, the World War II before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered the oldest manuscript uh, we had from the book of Isaiah was something like the 8th or ninth century. And so we, we know that for that to have existed, it had been copied over numerous times. And so when the book of, um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, one of the centerpieces of those discoveries was a scroll of the book of Isaiah that was, that was basically intact. It was the best preserved of all the materials. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls included other things besides Scripture, but it was well preserved. And so we say, "Hey, now we got a chance." That uh, those are copied about two hundred or one fifty somewhere BC, and so we've got about a thousand year gap between the the earliest copies we have to now this new copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls that emerges in Isaiah. So we could put them side by side and we can compare like how much corruption has crept into the text. Yeah, let me build the suspense here, Ross, because really this could have been a secular person doing a podcast like this, saying, oh, you wait and see, Christians. We're going to show you, we're going to debunk, we're going to debunk the Bible. We're going to show you just how bad the Bible really is. We're going to show you just how much... How much corruption there has been in the Bible, and so they were they were licking their chops. Now, this is how I like to envision it: yeah. they were licking their chops. The atheists were, yeah. the secular humanists were, because they wanted to prove the Bible was wrong. And I'm sure maybe this was what back in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. 1940s and 50s. I'm sure if I was a pastor back then, Ross, I might have been a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous, yeah. What's going to emerge? Yeah. You know. So what happened? Well, they put them side by side. And they're essentially the same. You know, there were there are some variations, a very small percent, like one percent, and and two different kinds of things. One is there's archaic spellings of of certain words. Um, so just as the English language, you know, changes over time, and we don't 
we don't spell all of our like the word shop. We don't spell it S H O P P E anymore. Mm. We spell it S H O P. And so we'd look at that, and say, "Oh, that's different," but it doesn't change the meaning. We know what the word is. And then there were a few cases where it was clear that the that the scribe had like jumped the line, or had you know so and that those are easy to identify. And so with with one percent of variation, it's it's the same. And so really, um, there's there's no, nothing that anybody could make hay out of with that. Like mm-hmm. if they're looking for bulletproof evidence against the Bible, that's not it. It was fact bulletproof evidence in favor of the Bible, actually. Yeah, that's right. And there are stories. There, there's just story after story as you dig into it. In fact, I would encourage you if you're a seeking Mormon, or even even a Christian listening to this, and some of this might cause you to think about how much we can trust the Bible. I think that's a good thought, yeah, yeah. and I think you should look into it, and you should do your research, because God's Word has stood the test of time, and it's reliable, mm-hmm. and we can go to the bank on God's Word. But the Book of Mormon, there's just so much that stacks up against the Book of Mormon. And so really, the response is, don't just trust your feelings about it. Yes, you can pray about it. Pray about the Bible, pray about the Book yeah, of Mormon, but yeah. at the end of the day, your feelings can't change what's true what's or not true. What's true, that's right, absolutely. And so seek the truth, and God's Word promises, He says, God says this in Jeremiah 29, 13, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. Mm-hmm. Don't seek me with preconceived notions or trying to prove one thing or the other. Just be, be a seeker of truth, and God promises that you'll find Him. So if you want to talk more about this topic, or if you want to learn more about that topic I mentioned about the reliability of the Bible, we'll find you can find all of it at pursuegod.org forward slash Mormonism. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.